a bunch of people ask, have asked me over the years, so what was that like to you know, have your house struck by three bolts of lightning and burn down and destroy 25 years worth of your work as an artist? That must have been devastating. My honest answer is, no, it really wasn't. It was a you catastrophe. It's the good chaos or the good catastrophe. Right after the fire, that same afternoon or evening, my wife and I went dancing. We either believe that God is going to take care of us, or we don't. This modern world is of particular interest to women. Betwixt, at the intersection of faith and culture. Well, hi, friends. Welcome to the Betwixt Podcast. I'm Deb Gregory. My guest is painter Bruce Herman. Bruce knew he wanted to create art since he was six years old. His parents weren't the sort of people to enroll him in private art lessons, but Bruce wasn't deterred. As a teenager, he left home to pursue art by working odd jobs and searching for a teacher. Artist Linfield Ott took him under his wing, employed him as a gardener, and provided mentorship. And Bruce went on to become a great painter and educator. Today, he's the Lothlorien Distinguished Chair in Fine Arts at Gordon College, where he founded the art department 35 years ago. Herman's art has been exhibited around the world, his paintings housed in world-renowned museums like the Vatican Museum of Modern Religious Art and the Cincinnati Museum of Fine Arts. Hey there. Hi, good morning. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Hey, good. Apologies for my voice right now because uh, I got a cold. Since he was a child, Bruce has been captivated by God's created beauty. It's the driving force behind his art and teaching, which he describes as the search for a fitting means to respond to the color, texture, and multitude of shapes in the creation. Well, Bruce, I am just so delighted to have this conversation with you. My pleasure. You knew you wanted to be an artist since you were six? Yeah. <laughs> How did that happen? What, what captivated you when you were six? Well, uh, since your topic or the uber topic of your podcast is liminality, maybe it'd be a good way to approach it there. Um, okay. As a little boy, for whatever reason, I was drawn to the world of dreams and fantasy beyond the normal child's interest in fantasy. I mean, every kid is an artist. Every kid is imaginative. Every kid is creative. But for some reason, I believe by God's grace, I was given a gift of a vision, and and that vision was both for the particularities of this world and the the physical universe, which is so abounding in wonder, uh, but also for the inner world of dreams, nightmares, visions, fantasy, the realm of the imagination, and that liminal space between the two, between the outer world and the inner world is where I live as an artist mm. uh, and have done since I was a child. And it's funny, my parents, I, my, I have memories of my grandmother wanting to engage me in conversation all the time. And she would just, she would giggle when she talked to me. And then at one point I said, I said, Grandma, why do you always laugh when I'm talking? And she said, because you're a little philosopher. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, 
And my aunt Lois used to do the same thing. The two of them would kind of engage me in these long conversations, which I loved. And basically, probably they would say that I engaged them in long conversations <laughs> because I couldn't stop asking hard questions as a little kid. And I just was always asking questions. And the questions that I asked were what I've now come to understand as what are called first order questions. Okay. You know, why is there evil? Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? What's wrong with this? this world, what's out of balance, why, you know, and I would ask those kinds of questions. I was, I guess what you'd call a really very, very religious kid, <laughs> whereas okay. my, my family were not religious. There was no reading of the Bible in our home, there was no talking about God really, but I was obsessed with God. For me, that deep, deep hunger for God was also deeply connected to my artistic yearning or longing, whatever you want to call it. Hmm. So from as far back as I can remember, it might be before I was six years old, probably is. Um, I just have some of my first art memories as a six-year-old. I have very strong memories as a little kid, like three or four years old, being absolutely wiped out by some beautiful thing. Like I remember being in our backyard in the early spring, walking around in, in just a effusion of uh, dandelion flowers, you know, those perfect little white globes that yes. with kind of gossamer threads that come out from the a globe in the center and then make another globe and then you breathe on it and it's gone, you know. Uh, I remember holding one of those in my hand and crying. Yes. Crying because, not because I was sad, but because I was, well, I don't know what I'd call it. I was joyful or it stimulated some kind of deep longing. And I can I could enumerate tons of memories like that hmm. in this place of reverence for the wonder that is generated by just common everyday miracles like, like a dandelion flower. And I remember also thinking when I held that flower in that moment of crying in joy and in longing, I remember thinking, this is like the moon. <laughs> and then thinking, it's also like the sun. And then I had heard in Sunday school class that the earth was a ball, you know, like the sun, like the moon. In fact, all the planets are these perfect globes. And I remember having that thought, holding that dandelion flower and thinking, there's something about this shape. It's really, really important. Oh, wow. Become interested in the mysteries of how things work. The word that comes to mind as I'm listening to you talk is, we just don't use this word enough, but the word wonder. Mm -hmm. Something that yeah. just captivates our attention and our imagination. Yeah, and I think if I were to summarize what prompted me to become an artist, it was just that. Awe and wonder and the sense of the numinousness of the world. I now have language for these things. Of course, I didn't as a kid. <laughs> and, and the word liminality is, you know, it could easily become a buzzword if you're not careful. Mm -hmm. But what we're referring to in the liminal is that space, that mental space, that emotional space, that psychological space, that spiritual space, where things don't have ready tags. They can't be reduced to a simple designation of philosophical or verbal or quantitative designation. They, they, they have a kind of fluidity of existence that makes us just sit back or fall down on our face in awe. Mm, that's right. You know, as I've kind of come into my own exploration of liminal space and liminality, mm -hmm. uh, your story 
is always like really close to the image of liminality in my mind. So I'm familiar with your story because in the 1990s, I had spent a little bit of time at Gordon-Conwell, about the time where a big thing happened in your life, (laughs) this big liminal moment, and it sent shockwaves through the whole community. But I'm guessing and I've heard have really changed your art. Can you talk about that? Well, uh, first of all, I'm assuming that when you say this big story, you're talking about our house fire in 1997. That's the one, yep. Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest with you. I hope this doesn't disappoint you, but it's not the big story. Um, In fact, it's an interesting story, and it has a bunch of interesting aspects to it, but it's certainly by no means the earth-shattering thing that you might think. A bunch of people ask, have asked me over the years, so what was that like to you know, have your house struck by three bolts of lightning and burn down and destroy 25 years' worth of your work as an artist? That must have been devastating. My honest answer is, no, it really wasn't. And I, I'm as, I was as surprised to discover that as maybe you might be hearing it. I, you know, I'm not at all surprised hearing it. And I think okay. that's the beauty of liminality, <laughs> that for some reason that was okay to you. It was better than okay. Um, I love the, the coinage, the word coinage by J.R.R. Tolkien. That it's, it, it comes from an essay of his uh, called On Fairy, meaning the fairy realm. It's a great word because it combines, you know, like the word you, E-U, meaning good, and catastrophe, meaning, you know, from the Greek, something that's falling apart and, and total chaos. So it's the good chaos or the good catastrophe. You catastrophe. Yeah, that's what it was. It was a you catastrophe. I mean, I'm not, I'm not downplaying the fact that that house fire was catastrophic. I mean, three bolts of lightning is pretty darn decisive. Well, tell, me, tell me the story. What happened? Okay, well, I, um, I did not see the lightning. I was inside the house washing the dishes. My wife was out in the truck testing the brakes on her horse trailer, so she wasn't there. The only other one in the house was my dog, Shadow. My neighbor was cutting his grass, and he felt all the hair on his body stand straight up, and then he saw these three bolts of lightning come down out of, this, out of a blue sky and hit the top of our hill. We're up on a hill, and he's down below, and he saw this happen and rushed up here with a little fire extinguisher. Uh, and, and I basically was running out and saying, Ed, forget it. That thing's not going to touch this. <laughs> so we, you know, we ran down and called the fire department. But a bunch of things happened all at once. You know, lightning is a pretty mysterious thing, but a lot of interesting and mysterious things happened. As I was standing there washing the dishes, I heard this deafening explosion and had no idea what it was at first. But in that same instant, like a nanosecond after that explosion, plumes of blue colored fire shot out from the electrical outlets on either side of the sink and surrounded me. Didn't touch me and didn't touch the dog, who was right at my ankle, shaking. And then the, that blue fire, whatever it was, went back, it's an electrical phenomenon, went back into the outlet. Our smoke alarms started screaming, and a plume of jet black smoke came pouring up out of our basement. And I realized there's, no, there's nothing I'm going to be able to do about this, so I, I fled. My neighbor, Ed, came up with this little fire extinguisher. <laughs> we both sort of looked at each other like, uh, that's not going to do anything. And then, you know, the rest is history.
the fire department could not put the blaze out and they could not figure this out because lightning strike fire, usually they're very localized in the house somewhere, like in a chimney or some high point, maybe sometimes a wall, but they'll usually be able to put it out in a matter of seconds. The fire marshal later said to me, I've been in this business 35 years. We could not figure out why we couldn't put this fire out. And what we, the fire marshal and I did was we went down into the basement of the now cooled off smoldering house to do an investigation. And what we discovered was the lightning connected with three large pine trees. It dug trenches through the dirt in the form of a spider web almost because it followed the roots of the trees erupting the dirt like a you know, like it was plowing right through the dirt. Oh. The reason for that is that we live up on a granite mound, a ledge, and there's no subsoil. So there was nowhere for the lightning to go to ground. And it just was seeking, like it always does, a ground. And we went outside, we could see the deepest trench was dug by the lightning from one of the pine trees going straight into our basement window. So obviously the lightning got into the basement through the root system of the tree. Hmm. We reconstructed the whole thing. What happened was it unwelded, in all, and this is all taking place in a nanosecond, it unwelded the oil tank for our furnace. Both ends of the oil tank were opened up like a giant arc welder had opened it up and, and it lit 250 gallons of fuel oil. Wow. Now, I'm told, I don't know much about this, but I'm told that I did a little bit of research that the surface of lightning when it hits is hotter than the surface of the sun, mm. which is mind-bending. But it ignited all that fuel, and it was a fuel fire, which is why they couldn't put it out with water. So basically, the house was so compromised by that fuel fire that we had to tear it down. Here's the, the reason why so much of my art was lost, is because my storage racks for my paintings we're in the driest part of the basement. I needed it to be in a dry part of the basement because, you know, paintings can be destroyed by mold and stuff. Well, the driest part of the basement was right near the fuel tank, right near the furnace. Ha! So basically, that was my paintings were the, the very first fuel of the fire other than the oil. Wow. 25 uh, years of paintings yeah, right there. Yeah, exactly. The way I took that was, um, you know, it says in... First Corinthians chapter three, our work will be tested by fire, whether it's made of you know, wood, hay or straw or precious metals. Each one's work will be tested by fire. And yet some workers work will be destroyed, but they will escape as one escaping through the flames, Paul says. Well, I sort of took that as that my work was tested by fire and apparently found wanting. Hmm. Uh, but I was spared that that plume of blue fire that embraced me, but didn't touch me has become for me a kind of a mental trope for the whole event, which is God was there. He was in charge. You know, I, I'm not saying God threw, threw thunderbolts at me like Zeus, but I think... It was an act God, of God. <laughs> it was an, well, yeah, technically by insurance standards, it's an act of God. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's the, the physical happening. You know, part of the reason why I consider it a catastrophe and not just a plain old disaster or... As some people call it a tragedy, it's not a tragedy. Tragedy is where human lives are lost. Mm. But the reason I consider it a catastrophe is because right after the fire, that same afternoon or evening, my wife and I went dancing because, well, we couldn't go home, right? We were going to end up spending the night at our neighbor's house, and the neighbor was going to the dance, and so we went to the dance. And what we discovered that evening was that we were fine. These two lions that I know As beautiful as they are strong Sleeping in each other's arms 
And even in the days ahead, which were very inconvenient, which is, you know, itemizing all the stuff we'd lost for the insurance company, et cetera, et cetera, we discovered something really interesting, which is that the Holy Spirit had been, for years, we were unconscious of this, the Holy Spirit had been painstakingly behind the scenes and unraveling all the knots to our possessions that might have been there. And so when we lost all that stuff, we were surprised to find out it didn't matter. What have we not been given? We, we really didn't feel the loss, particularly. It was inconvenient, it was a pain in the neck to have to sort of sort through all the burnt stuff, but it ended up becoming this great insight was given, at least to me, I feel, that uh, we hold these things lightly. That's what my wife said after the fire. We hold all these things lightly. This land and this home belong to the Lord. We prayed on this spot before we built this house. You know, if he wants to take it away, it's his to take away. And we felt completely freed, hmm. in a sense, freed from any ownership, either of the house or my art or anything else. And thanks be to God, no one was harmed, not even my dog. I just think that that is just a crazy story. <laughs> it's just yeah. a crazy story. <laughs> yeah. And I guess why that story always kind of sticks with me as being kind of a marker of liminality in my mind is that it is really paradoxical, <laughs> you know, that in the moment where you've lost so much, you've gained so much freedom, is what I'm hearing you say. Yes, yes, absolutely. That's You've said it really well. And then, and at the same time, and this is the other thing that I, I hear from people who've gone through experiences like this, that as they open themselves up to what God is going to do in and through them in that moment, instead of clutching onto their fears, their longings, their possessions, but when they open themselves up to God's presence in that moment, there is some strange peace or even joy is sometimes what I hear. And so when I hear you talk about going out dancing, <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah. just, how does that happen? Oh, well, I, I mean, my explanation may not be right. I don't know how it happens really, but I, but I speculate that the Holy Spirit had been kind of weaning us hmm. um, from attachment to worldly goods for years. In other words, this wasn't a sudden awakening that the possessions are, don't define us. That recognition, that realization that we are not defined by the things we own mm -hmm. had been gradually forming in us for years. You know, when Jesus says, take no thought for the day, what you shall eat, what you shall wear, he could add to that list all kinds of stuff. Take no thought for your success as an artist. Take no thought for your, your reputation or any of that stuff. Don't be concerned with that stuff because God knows you need it. You know, Jesus makes this comparison. He says, you know, look at the birds of the air. Regard the, the wildflowers, the lilies of the field. They don't sweat it. They're not like grinding every day. They're just sitting there being beautiful. Be like those. Don't, don't worry about this stuff. I'm going to take care of this. And, and we either believe him or we don't. I mean, I hate to put it in really blunt, stark terms, but I actually think that's true. And the very first story that we have from Scripture about the human race is that they really didn't believe that God had provided everything they needed. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been tempted to reach up and take the one thing he had said, don't do that. Don't take that thing. It's not meant for you. 
So I think that I think probably if you had to sort of say what's wrong with the human race, the answer to the question is God will provide. Do you believe? Do you believe God? It's not so much do you believe in God. This is what I say to my atheist friends. You know, it doesn't matter if you believe in God or not. God believes in you. The question is, do you believe God? And you're given an opportunity. We're all given an opportunity to believe Him when He says, "I will take care of you." The net result, if we do, if we do trust God. And we do start to have what I think is true faith, which is essentially believing God will take care of you. You stop worrying about that stuff. And then you start being like the wildflowers. You start shining. You start looking. You, you just become a center of peace and beauty for everyone around you. You know, sadly, being flawed humans in any given 24-hour period, we remember and forget this <laughs> thing over and over again. I mean, this, mor- this morning I woke up and I prayed, Lord, Help me to remember that Deb Gregory and I have to talk so I don't go off and do something else. <laughs> Help me remember that this is all up to you. This is your story. I'm just a participant. You know, but we forget, and that's why we need each other. We, we're here to remind each other that God is taking care of us. God will provide. There's nothing that can happen to us to, that will separate us from the love of Christ. These two lions that I know As beautiful as they are strong Sleeping in each other's arms When the thunder rocks your bones And the night is cold and long The jungle keeps you Isn't this the craziest paradox of the Christian life? That we might stand at the edge of loss and somehow gain freedom. Honestly, this is something that bewilders me. And that's probably why I'm so inspired by the way that Bruce has stood at the edge of loss with a sense of faith, hope, and love that has birthed freedom. And the way that he notices the movement of the Holy Spirit in his heart and life as a movement of love, even in the unbalancing winds of change and disruption. Well, friends, this is just the beginning of a robust conversation with Bruce Herman. Stay tuned for part two, where we talk about art and iconography. Together, we explore the paradoxical nature of art, which disrupts what Bruce calls the certitude engine, that motor which drives our culture today. Special thanks to Jason Herod and Brian Funk for the use of their Lion Song, which you hear now. This song was on the lips of many at Gordon College after Bruce Herman lost his house and artwork to fire. You can find links to their music in the show notes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to subscribe and to give a positive review on iTunes or Google Play and help spread the word. This is Grassroots Podcasting, and I appreciate your support. It has been a real joy to produce this episode for you. Thank you for holding liminal space with me today. Catch you next time.